You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, you're listening to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is the final episode of our book club season. Yes, this has been season five, and we have so far read three books and discussed them, and this is the fourth book, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. We're really excited to wrap this up. We are, and we're excited for more reasons than one. One, we're doing another podcast episode, which is always exciting. But two, I'm live and in the studio for the first time this season. Previously, I've been away on the road, so I've been Skyping in, and Sally has been doing all of the sound editing and recording, which she's done a marvelous job at. But I'm very happy to turn it over to you <laughs> and to let the computer face you during this episode. <laughs> but now I'm back. And we're both sitting in our closet together. And it's great. So live <laughs> and in person, coming to you from the studio closet, surrounded by clothes. <laughs> so before we dive into Being Mortal, which is a great book, and we'll get into all the reasons why, we have an exciting announcement. Yes. We are moving. Sally, where are we moving to? We are moving to the great state of Texas. Texas. That's right. We have lived there before, but we don't live there now. We've yeah, we're spent, moving back there. <laughs> we've spent several years in the St. Louis area. It's a great area, great part of the country. If you ever want to visit, we have lots of things that we can recommend for you. But now we're moving to Austin, which apparently is the best city in Texas. Right. That's what everyone tells us. Everyone we tell they're moving to Austin says we're in for a treat. We've so, been there briefly, but I feel like I can't really say anything really briefly, about it. So really briefly. I don't know. We will see. We'll see if everyone's hype lives up or if Austin lives up to everyone's hype. So if you're from Austin, if you, if you live there now, if you have good recommendations for us on what to do. Food. You know we love to eat. So food recommendations, yeah. always Family welcome. friendly. Anything places family to go. friendly places to live we still don't have a place that to is live. also true yeah and our timeline is this summer so we're moving to austin in basically the hottest part of the year so that'll be exciting yeah that'll be great i guess on the on a good note it only gets better from there right because you experience it when it's super hot right and then it gets cooler a yeah. little bit since you get there yeah and we're moving there at my birthday so that is exciting because i love my birthday it's kind of a challenge for me too because i have to figure out a way to do a birthday bash while we're moving. Right. It's going to be tricky. It's okay. The I'm pressure a, is on. the challenge. No, okay. the pressure is on. Very much on. <laughs> I've got to make it big. Yeah. It we'll is a big a year for me. It really is. The big three. Oh, I, can I say that? Yeah, that's okay. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> the big three. Oh, so yeah, that's why the pressure's on because yeah. I, yeah, you only turn 30 once. I'm really an adult now. That's true. This, yep. Yeah, 30 <laughs> is the cutoff. That's when you're going to be an adult. So I'm not there yet, fortunately. <laughs> not an adult yet. Still can do childish things. But uh, anyway, yeah, Austin, Texas. That's our exciting news. So we'll be there this summer. If you're in the area, look us up. Uh, send us a note on Instagram or Twitter, whatever. Let us know what to do, what to see, who to talk to. Yeah, and follow us on Instagram. You will probably see updates as we continue our moving process. You probably will. And we normally do this at the end, but while we're talking about social media, Instagram, at VernacularPod, Twitter, at VernacularPod, email, Zach and Sally, at VernacularPodcast.com. Zach with just a C, Z-A-C, like Zach Efron, but I did it before he did it, or at least before he made it cool. <laughs> so anyway, there it is, Austin, Texas. Should we talk about the book? Yeah, definitely. Look. If you've been following us on Instagram, you will know that I, who I've, I guess I've been 
doing the majority of the Instagram posts lately. I've really been enjoying Atul Gawande, and I really liked being mortal. Um, I also liked his writing style so much that I started reading another of his books. So I have mostly good things to say about being mortal. As do I, I think. So let's do it. All right. There are seven chapters and an epilogue, and I think roughly you can divide it into two halves. It helps me to think of the epilogue as a chapter because then okay. it's a neatly divisible eight. Okay, eight. <laughs> so two halves of four chapters. Yeah. <laughs> so the first half is basically about the development of how we take care of the elderly, people who are sick and dying at the end of their lives. So we talk about the beginning of nursing homes. Yep. And well, he also talks about poor houses and the history of poor houses right, in the how U.S. That, start, that, was, that was where elderly people went at first, and right. then they started nursing homes. And then he talks about the – well, he, in between, he talks about the change in how we viewed hospitals right. as a place not just to go and get a treatment before returning home, but actually a place to have extended stays uh, for people who, who um, needed, needed a place to stay, basically, right. and were too ill to survive on their own. Right. So, yeah, the first half is a really interesting medical history. And then the second half, he gets into really kind of end-of-life ethics yeah. questions and the questions life healthcare. that you have to answer at the end of your life about what kind of care you would like to receive. Yeah. Um, and also, actually, the first chapter is really interesting because isn't that where he goes into how our bodies decay and die? Um, or maybe that's I, one no, of the other No, I think that's oh, the that's second chapter. Fall apart. Yeah. yeah, so second chapter, things fall apart. And yeah. it's about, I mean, as you would expect, things falling apart. And he describes in vivid detail and sometimes unsettling, maybe you know, maybe it shouldn't be unsettling, but in unsettling detail, how exactly and our why bodies exactly die. our bodies die. Yeah, even if you have lived a healthy, active life, right. your body's going to come to an end. And he's kind of just setting up his history of nursing homes, showing that, there, this is a need that we have. Right. Everyone's going to die at some point. Everyone's body is going to fall apart, and we need to deal with that and to accept it. Well, if I can, let me use that as a launching point. Yeah. To, so in the introduction, one of the things I liked in this book is he he sets up the premise of his book and his thesis pretty well because one of the things he says in the introduction, I think it's page six um, – I'm sorry, page eight, I think. He says, death, of course, is not a failure. Death is normal. Death may be the enemy, but it is also the natural order of things. And I've said on this podcast before, I think, how in in modern society, we think too often that death is the worst possible thing. Death is not the worst possible thing. Death is, one, an inevitable thing. So it happens to everybody regardless of how much you try to avoid it. But death is also a natural thing. And so there's um, perhaps a goodness in understanding how to die well. It's something he talks about at the end of his book, and we'll yeah, the art back of dying. That. But I like the way that he sets this book up. Initially, being mortal is a natural condition. It, it's not something to be overcome. And so I've been dabbling in um, the literature of this thing called transhumanism. And if you're not familiar with transhumanism, it is the uh, belief that we can and should be enhancing our bodies. That we can overcome our human nature. Possibly. Well, yes, that we can that we can transcend our human nature, basically, but um, that we should modify that that nature, including potentially biologically or including probably biologically, uh, in order to potentially even overcome mortality. And I think this is a really destructive philosophy for a whole number of reasons, but I like the way Gawande sets this up as something that's clearly not what this is. His book isn't about how to not be mortal anymore. It's about how to wrestle appropriately with the fact that we are mortal. 
So anyway, after that uh, <laughs> segue, uh, let me just overview the book, I guess. Yeah, and Sal, you can help me kind of structure this. So he sets that up in the introduction. Um, he talks about how we don't know how to die well. He talks about how we sort of, ex- you know, in, um, indefinitely try to extend life, but don't know how to actually inappropriately reach its conclusion. Um, so he starts his book with the chapter called The Independent Self, and he talks about how uh, we've reached this point where, well, first of all, he talks about how in in most of history there's never been this concept of retirement. Um, but now, uh, as you look at an, at an age curve in someone's life, for example, towards the end of those years, starting in their 60s normally, uh, retirement happens. And so we have this concept of human flourishing in which you are an independent self. And he talks about how um, people think modern society uh, demoted the elderly. And he says, no, it didn't demote the elderly, it demoted the family. Uh, and so the family has been demoted and therefore, uh, well, the family has been devoted, demoted because independence has been seen as the ideal. And because of that, it, because of that sort of holding independence up on a pedestal, we have families fall apart, which means that when people get old, their families aren't there to care for them anymore. And so you have this problem of a bunch of people who are, now the independent self um, who living geographically separated right exactly yeah and so he, instead of he talks about his family back in India contrasts it with his family yeah, yeah and how his grandfather his grandfather yes right, uh, Sitaram Gawande he he lived for a very very long time and thanks in, in large part to the fact that he lived with his family right and, and they were there for extended him extended family it wasn't just the burden of one or two children but all of the children kind of took care of him and helped him and um, and so he ended up having a very long life but we don't have that anymore people move away from their parents and we are li- all living very separate independent lives for better or for worse right but this results in a problem which is how do we care for the elderly when they get to that point if we don't have those kinds of cultural systems in place the way that that his grandfather had back in india right and in the second chapter things fall apart he talks about what this process of aging looks does. like physically yeah, looks like physically uh, biologically and he also talks demographically about what it what it does to the human population. So he says that basically as, as medical science goes on, we see what he calls the rectangularization of survival. So he says normally throughout history, population pyramids have been the norm, right? So you have uh, a lot of people who are born and then uh, relatively high infant mortality. So the next rung, you know, your sort of toddlers and young children are is a smaller tier. And, and mortality – kind of, um, uh, for lack of a less crude way of putting this, mortality sort of just shaves off measures of the population as you get older. And so at the top, you have a relatively low number of people who are old. And at the bottom, you have your your widest rung of the pyramid. He says now... Thanks to advances in medical science and public health, right. we're living longer, healthier lives. Right. So he says, for example, in 1950, children under the age of five were 11% of the U.S. population. Adults aged 45 to 49 were 6%, and those over 80 were only 1%. Today, we have as many 55-year-olds as five-year-olds. In 30 years, there will be as many people over 80 as there are under five. So wow. this is the rectangularization of survival that he's talking about. And this is this is a very practical policy problem as well um, when we're talking about how modernizing medicine affects the the uh, the population base. And because of this rectangular rectangularization, we've kind of forgotten that eventually 
we are no longer going to be able to care for ourselves. Even though we are living longer, healthier lives where we can take care of ourselves for a longer period of time without help, eventually we get to the point where we can't. And what are we going to do about that? And he talks about this prevailing fantasy that we can be ageless. And it's a fantasy because as anyone who studies the decaying of our bodies will tell you, um, geriatricians in particular, that that's, that's not possible. We can't, we're not ageless. Eventually we become aged and we do die. And, um, and we have to come to grips with that as a society, as families, as individuals. So he just says that medical advances in public health, um, they, they've progressed and, but they cannot change human nature. We eventually age, decline and die. So, and then the next chapter is about dependence, how, we are dependent on other people and what are the the systems in place in our society that can help us take care of people when they become so severely dependent. And one of those things is nursing homes. And we haven't always had nursing homes. Like Zach said, we had poor houses at one point and now we have nursing homes. But it, I thought one really interesting point that he made was that nursing homes weren't truly made for us for right. taking care of people. Right. It wasn't made for caring. It was made for kind of getting people off of their family's back. <laughs> right. And um, they, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't made to help people live meaningful lives at the end of their lives. It was made to just yeah. It was made for people to help have families out, have busy lives in their middle age, so they don't have to take care of their parents. Right. Right. And so we send people to nursing homes, but they they just aren't set up to help help the elderly have fulfilling lives even to the very end. And that's really what Atul Gawande is interested in. He's interested in finding out what people value at the end of their lives and helping them to to hold on to those things. And he sets up – so recall that in his first chapter he talks about independence and how we idealize independence and, I guess, idolize independence so that that becomes sort of the prime good of life. The problem with that is that when you reach the end – when you're very dependent on other people and not independent of them, uh, we tend to think, um, and he talks about this on page 76, I'm sorry, 75, he, he, he said we tend to think that once you lose your physical independence, a life of worth and freedom is simply not possible. And so it's pretty terrible when people end up in nursing homes feeling very dependent and those nursing homes don't help them feel empowered to live full lives because they just get depressed. And uh, obviously that's um, – you can imagine how that would – affect uh rates of, of health basically you know if you're if, if you're mentally depressed and don't have a will to survive anymore you're not going to um improve physically thank you you know yeah. what i'm trying to say <laughs> <laughs> but so he talks about this and he says this is a con- this is the consequence of a society that faces the final phase i have of- the same quote Do in you? my notes yes oh, nice okay <laughs> this is page 76 to 77 yep this is the consequence of a society that faces the final phase of the human life cycle trying not to think about it We end up with institutions that address any number of societal goals from freeing up hospital beds to taking burdens off families' hands, uh, like Sally was saying with nursing homes, to coping with poverty among the elderly. That was the poor houses. Yep. But never the goal that matters to the people who reside in them, how to make life worth living when we're weak and frail and can't fend for ourselves anymore. And this is kind of – this is very apropos of our prior – our most recent book club episode, um, which is about living meaningful lives. This is about how do you live a meaningful life at the end of your life. So we read right. about the power of meaning. Yes. And we weren't really talking about elderly people. But here it's the power of meaning 
at the very end of your life. Right. And we can't forget that those people want to have meaningful lives too. It's not just about looking back at your life and saying, oh, I had such a great life. It's about continuing that meaningful living very up to the very end as much as possible within the limits of human nature. So the next chapter I thought was really interesting I don't know. I think I've said that about every chapter. <laughs> they're, but then, they're all so interesting. Yeah, but the next chapter <laughs> is it called Assistance. And this is where we talk about the beginning of assisted living. And I think I've always had an idea of what assisted living is like, but I never knew what the full intent um, at the point of its creation was. And he talks about Karen Brown Wilson and what she was trying to do when she first started the idea of assisted living. And we really haven't lived up to that today. Right. She she wanted to find out what makes life worth living when we're old and fragile and unable to take care of ourselves. And she and it was hard to to make that happen on a large scale. And a lot of the assisted living homes today, I think, look more like nursing homes than yes. what Karen wanted them to look like, right. which is people living independently, but kind of in a communal setting right. with having medical care right at their fingertips, um, but not being kind of um, not being controlled by the, right. those medical care workers the way that you are. Having in choices, a nursing home. basically. Yeah. Choices are important. Yeah. Even even choices that might be detrimental to their health because they're still independent. So she had she had the idea of having um, an apartment building where people could live in their individual apartments and be able to call on medical professionals if necessary. But within their their apartment, they could kind of do as they pleased. And if they needed special accommodations or they needed um, you know handicap accessibility or something like that, that could be that could be provided for them. Right. I also thought one of the interesting things in this chapter was how Gwanda talks about how as people age, they actually tend to be happier and to change the way they prioritize things. So he has this one line where he says um, how we how, something like how we spend our time depends on how much time we have left or it mm. seems to depend yeah, on how much time we have left. Yeah, the perspective. What's your perspective? So your perspective changes as you age. And he talks about how studies – Find, I'm, I'm reading now from page 94. Studies find that as people grow older, they interact with fewer people and concentrate more on spending time with family and established friends. Um, again, on page 95, he references the, the work of a researcher named Laura Karstensen, who has basically explored what people or how people's emotions change as they age. And we'd normally think, oh, you're getting older, you have less time left, you'd get grumpier, basically. Uh, and we often have, I think, a stereotype of people like like Uva from the first book of our book club, yeah. right? A, a grumpy old uh, widower. Um, great book, by the way. You should read it. Uh, so we have this stereotype in our mind of that person. But actually, according to the data, people get more positive as they age. Uh, again, they, their expectations are kind of lowered. Right. And they, they focus in on the basics of a meaningful life. Right. So reading from 95, overall, they, being the elderly, find living to be a more emotionally satisfying and stable experience as time passes, even as old age narrows the lives they lead. Uh, so I thought that was a really interesting thing to frame the previous three chapters as well and help us think about uh, help us think about this shift in sort of demoting the, I guess, the family and consequently the elderly or leaving the elderly alone when the elderly have things that they can teach us as well. Yeah. And it's those studies showed to it 
um, that it wasn't just age necessarily that changed someone's perspective, but even just knowing that they were at the end of their life. So you could be 30 and have a terminal diagnosis. Oh, definitely. And your perspective would be the same as an elderly person who at 80 knows that they have a terminal diagnosis or that they're just going to die because their body is getting old. Good point. So it was about perspective regardless of age. So that, I guess, was the end of the medical history. I guess his diagnosis of the problem. Yeah, and looking kind of at society at large and how we create these systems to help take care of people. Right. And then the next four chapters, we zero in on individual patients at the end of their life and the kinds of decisions that they have to make because of the progress of medical technology. Thanks to medical technology, like we said, we live longer lives. But now we have so many more options for our health care. And we need to prepare people to answer these important questions, have answers ready for their physicians when they ask them how they want to be cared for at the end of their life and to what lengths the doctors should go to prolong their lives. And one thing he said just starting off the chapter of letting go, that's the cha- t- the title of, I think, chapter four, four or five. The end of life in an ICU comes with no chance for you to have said goodbye or it's okay or I'm sorry or I love you. And people with serious illness have priorities. That have, those are That's what they want to be doing at the end of their lives. They don't want to just be simply prolonging their lives or avoiding suffering. They want to strengthen relationships and remain mentally aware. They don't want to be a burden on people and they want to achieve a sense that their life is complete. So he asked this question, how can we build a healthcare system that will actually help people achieve what's most important to them at the end of their lives? And a key to all of the subsequent chapters is asking questions, asking the right questions of elderly people and helping them to think through what do I really want? And I thought that was really helpful. Definitely. Even not being a physician. I don't need to ask my patients that, but I could think through that for myself. I could help my parents think through that when they get to that point. And even more apropos, we can help our parents ask our grandparents that. Right. Because both Zach and I, our parents are helping take care of our grandparents and they're going to die soon. And it's really important that they have thought about what preferences they have for their end of life care. And I I think I, I used to like maybe when I was in high school, I used to think of advanced directives, you know, thinking about, for example, ahead of time, do I want to be put on a ventilator? Mm-hmm. I used to think of those as sort of morbid, mm-hmm. uh, cold, maybe clinical. Uh, but I certainly don't think that anymore because I think thinking about the very realistic possibilities of your end-of-life care help you. Well, I, I guess they're they're helpful for three reasons. One, they help the medical practitioner who's treating you know what to do. Yep. Two, they help your closest family or your spouse or whoever would, whoever would be making those decisions otherwise for you if you were incapacitated, they help them cope. Not have decisions to because make. Because they don't have to make decisions and then suffer with guilt for them. Yeah, they just implement your decisions. Right. And then third, most importantly, it helps you actually process the very real fact of mortality and the fact that you will one day die. Yeah. And it, you know, it's not actually morbid to recognize that as as I mentioned going says in the beginning, death is not the death is death may be the enemy, but it is the natural order of things. So I think wrestling with your own mortality is good too for the reasons that we were just talking about. That as you as you're more you cognizant of your coming, decreasing time when you, you realize can say, the end is coming. I'm sorry. You can say I love you. Right. You can have those conversations that you want to have before you die. And you focus on the things that matter. So a, a personal story here is um, my grandfather has been in declining health for some time. 
and he's nearing the end, and he's very aware of it. And as he has become aware of this, we've watched him become a much softer, gentler, kinder man than he ever was. Now, he was always a great grandfather, but but he's become even more so in the in the last years of his life. He's just his personality has uh, softened a bit, you know, in a, in a good way. He, um, I saw him a week ago, and he gave me a long hug for the first time in a long time. He's just not a hugger. You know, he's just not the kind of a person, probably a generational thing more than anything. But he gave me a long hug and he talked about our daughters and it was just, he was just a different kind of person. You could tell that he was really cherishing the moments that he had with the people he loved. And so given that, that we need to ask these questions and have these conversations, how do we do that? And that's what the next chapter is about. It's called Hard Conversations. And it talks about different relationships that doctors and patients can have with each other and what is the best relationship for them to have um, in order to to ask and answer these questions effectively. So he talks about a paternalistic relationship where the uh, doctor is uh, the medical authority and the patient is just this patient who's who's receiving the information from the from the doctor and believes that the doctor knows best and he just needs to follow whatever the doctor says. And then there's the informative relationship, which is opposite of the paternalistic relationship where the doctor is the technical expert, um, but also the retailer and the patient is the consumer. The doctor supplies the knowledge and the skills and the patient just makes the decisions and the patient has all the autonomy. And then the third is the interpretive relationship. And usually when you have this set of three, the third one is the preferred one. Um, and it's kind of the a, a combination of those two, paternalistic and informative, because the doctor helps the patient determine what they want and then helps them interpret their preferences and their feelings. And the doctor provides the meaning behind the information, not just the facts. So with the informative doctor, he just provides the information and the patient acts on it right, and makes the decisions. But here, the doctor can also interpret those facts for them and help them understand what does this mean for my life? What does this mean? How does this affect the things that I hold dear? How will this change the way I live? And how will this change the way I die? And how does this relate to what my values and my preferences are? Right. And just helps them integrate all of that information and and better come to an understanding of where they are and what they need to do to achieve their final goals in life. And, um, but it's really, really hard. I, I love how Atul Gawande relays these conversations that he has with his own patients right. and admits that, oh, there I was being doctor informative. Right. Oh, there I was being doctor authority. And he realized it's really hard to be honest with your patients. And yeah, it, side note, I do appreciate Gawande's honesty throughout yeah. this book because there are times where he admits that he did wrong, that yeah. he told, a, he addressed a question that a patient had in the wrong way or yeah. he gave potentially the wrong advice. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a really good sort of introspective look into the life of a very prominent doctor for that reason too. Yeah, and it helps you understand, one, how surgeons are just really ill-equipped to have these conversations with their patients. Yes. And just to kind of have a little bit more empathy for them while they are having these conversations and realize how important end-of-life counseling is. Yes. Because um, Atul Gawande would find end-of-life counselors to help him kind of talk through, this is the way that I should talk to my patients, right. and helping him to um, just come up with strategies for for having these conversations with his patients. And it just seems like every every hospital needs to have that. Right. I've, I mean, I've heard too many stories of people who have a 
you know, encounter a doctor who just doesn't seem to care about them at all. And it's just little words that they can say to help the doctor relay to the patient that they are pulling for them and that they care about them. One thing he said was um, – he he was talking to an NLA counselor, or it was I think it might have been a fellow doctor, and he said the three important words to say are "I am worried," and you you give your patient the facts, but then you say "I am worried," and "I am worried" tells the patient that the situation is serious, right. but I'm pulling for you, and there is hope within nature's parameters. Right. Not crazy hope, like you're not going to get completely better, but there is some hope, right. and just that brings it down to their level and just says. I'm here for you, and I want to help you do what it what is possible, what can be done. I don't think. I mean, I, I've never had a serious procedure yeah. done or had a serious life threatening illness, but yeah. I, I don't think a doctor's ever said that to me either. But I can imagine it would be sitting comforting. in that chair would be very comforting to hear your yeah. doctor say, "I'm worried." Like, yeah. Oh, this doctor cares for me. He sees me as a person, so he's yeah. actually worried about me. And that's just another another subject in his lab or. A, a you know another tick mark undergoing a procedure, but he's also being honest with me because right. he's telling me that this is serious. But he's not saying, "Well, I'm sorry, but there's no hope, and I'm moving on to the patient in the next room." Right. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. Um. So on this subject of how how the physician's approach can really help people deal with end of life decisions, uh, in this chapter, letting go, he mentions the town of La Crosse, Wisconsin. Uh, and he says, this is on page 178, um, consider the case of La Crosse, Wisconsin. Its elderly residents have unusually low end-of-life hospital costs. During their last six months, according to Medicare data, they spend half as many days in the hospital as the national average. And there's no sign that doctors or patients are halting care prematurely. Despite average rates of obesity and smoking, their life expectancy outpaces the national mean by a year. To understand La Crosse, uh, according to this expert that Gawande talked to, you have to go back to 1991 when local medical leaders headed a systematic campaign to get medical people and patients to discuss end-of-life wishes. And basically, uh, this came down to a multiple-choice form that asked four questions. One, do you want to be resuscitated if your heart stops? Two, do you want aggressive treatment such as intubation and mechanical ventilation? Three, do you want antibiotics? Four, do you want tube or intravenous feeding if you can't eat on your own? By 1996, 85% of the people in the cross had filled out a directive like this. Um, it had been 15%, so they basically got 80% of the population, uh, or I'm sorry, 70% of the population added to that. Uh, and it made all the doctors' jobs that much easier. But in addition to uh, giving the doctors that instruction, it also helped these people wrestle with the end-of-life questions so that when it came down to it, uh, they knew what they wanted and they knew what to expect. Yeah, and I think those questions are good. They help kind of start the ball rolling. They're not necessarily as deep of questions as maybe people should be considering about what their values are and what quality of life they want to have at the end. But at least they start that conversation. And for a physician who maybe has trouble talking about these things with their patients, that's a great starting point to just kind of talk about the basics of of the technology that's available at end of life. Um, and well, speaking of the, of your point about how those are good to start the conversation, um, throughout the book, Gawande sort of weaves in vignettes from his, his struggles with his own father. Yeah. Um, and his own father's experience dying. And his father had a very drawn out battle with cancer and it eventually affected his nervous system and made life very painful and frustrating for him at the end of his life. But Gawande watched him battle this from start to finish. 
And in chapter seven, which is called Hard Conversations, uh, Gawande talks about how um, his father had basically made the right choices medically at every step along the way. He had put off an immediate surgery, waited until uh, after he had been forced to leave his his surgical career, because Gawande is actually a second-generation surgeon, which is pretty cool. His father was a surgeon as well. I think his mother was also a physician. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Um, And so he said he'd made all the right choices, but the choices don't stop. Life is choices, and they are relentless. So uh, and he says, no sooner have you made one choice than another is upon you. So the you can answer these yes or no questions on a multiple choice form, but I think you need to go deeper than that. You need to actually wrestle with the sort of guiding principles governing the individual choices that you're making. Because yeah, there's what always does human be flourishing mean to me? And what are the kind of what do I want my life to look at right. look like when I'm dying? There's another vignette that he uh, tells of a patient whose name is, I think, Sarah in the book. Sally might remember better than me. But she is diagnosed with a uh, small cell lung cancer and ends up going through, I think, four different rounds of chemotherapy. And it, She was diagnosed, I think, when she was pregnant. Yes, correct. And she had her daughter. Had her daughter. But yep. continued battling cancer. Correct. And she had just, even though... She was left weaker after each round of chemotherapy because chemotherapy is so difficult on your body. Uh, and even though the cancer was not responding to any of those, she decided to keep going for the next one, basically hoping for what was really a miracle cure at the end. Because yeah, she they, even had some experimental procedures. Right, because they start, of course, with the most the most likely, the, mo- the, hi- the treatment with the highest probability of success. And then after that, your probability of success sort of diminishes. And she kept doing that and... It weakened her body to such an extent that she started getting... She couldn't battle basic things like pneumonia. Right. Exactly. Which is what eventually killed her, I think. Just a simple cold, essentially. Um, And so he he posits that maybe she made the wrong decisions, that she should have focused her time uh, feeling as well and as strong as she could with the people that she loved the most, her her family, obviously, um, instead of instead of weakening her body with these treatments. Now, obviously, no one's pointing fingers. It's hard to it's hard to imagine yourself in that position. Um, but I think it's a question worth asking. Is it better to... Do less. Huh? To do less, yeah. Yeah, because he talks about the pressure to do more, to always choose the most aggressive treatment, to always do whatever you can. And even as a doctor, it's there's a pressure to always provide those options and say, well, we could do this or we could do that. And if you leave it up to your doctor to make those decisions, technically they can always do more. There's always something more that can be done. And it puts a lot of pressure on the patients to just keep saying, yes, yes, yes. Keep, you know, do whatever you can do for me. Rather than giving them the option of saying, no, I don't want anything else done. Um, I, I want to live the fullest life I can with the people around me and not be stuck in an ICU until the day I die. And I think that's, that was just, that's really something to think about. It's, it's hard, but there might come a point when you just have to say no to the treatments and, and realize that more treatment actually isn't going to make your life more satisfying. Right. There might be a small chance of prolonged life, but what will that life be like? Is that is the quality of that life going to be actually better? And yeah. then he then the, the, I think that the last chapter before the epilogue is about courage. And I thought this was interesting. He, um, well, I guess first, do you have anything more about about that other about the chapter hard conversations? Um, I have one thing, but I'll save it for the end. Okay. Um, so in the chapter on courage, he talks about there's two kinds of courage required in aging and sickness. And um, I like this because 
yeah, it follows right on the heels of his talking about the courage to kind of say no to treatment. But there's the courage to confront the reality of mortality, the courage, which means the courage to seek out the truth of what is to be feared and what is to be hoped. And then there's also the courage to act on the truth we find. So we have to confront that we're dying and what that means and what our prognosis is and our diagnosis. And then we have to have the courage to act on that. And that might mean saying no to a treatment rather than saying yes. Yes. And then there was a part in this chapter, actually, that reminded me of Power of Meaning mm-hmm. by Emily S. Fahani Smith. Um, he talks about how life is meaningful because it is a story. Yes, a story exactly. has a sense of a whole. And its arc is determined by the significant moments, the ones where, where something happens. A seemingly happy life may be empty, and a seemingly difficult life may be devoted to a great cause. We have purposes larger than ourselves in stories. Endings matter. And this just um, kind of combined Emily. Uh, pillars of storytelling and purpose, yep. which and we saying, talked about in our critique. Yeah, about how those those actually are interwoven, right? And you can't really separate them, right? And that so that that just is an in our critique for people who didn't them. listen to the Power of Meaning podcast was that S. Bonnie Smith talks about uh, storytelling and purpose as two separate, separate pillars, pillars of meaning. Of meaning. And our critique was that actually the story is what you tell in order to access the purpose. So yeah. it's not it's not an independent pillar. It's, uh, storytelling and purpose are interwoven, like Sally said. So uh, I think that Gawande is backing us up on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to talk about this because I think this is a really important part. So this is this is a little bit of a deviation from um, the well, I guess it's not really deviation because this is re- this is very related to end of life ethics because it's one of the the hot button issues today. But it's assisted suicide. And uh, in this uh, in this book, Gwande talks about assisted suicide, and he talks about how he's well. It seems like he's he's uh, cautiously supportive of people's right to end their to choose to end their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does say, uh, I would disagree with him on that. But he he does say, and I would agree with him here that he's definitely uh, leery of what happens when we expand. Quoting page two forty four. When we expand the terrain of medical practice to include actively assisting people with speeding their death, um, so he uses the example of the Dutch. Uh, he he basically says, uh, "Well, I'll just read verbatim." He does say, "The fact that by 2012, one in 35 Dutch people sought assisted suicide at their death is not a measure of success; it is a measure of failure. Our ultimate goal, after all, is not a good death, but a good life to the very end." Uh, so he says the Dutch have been slower than others to develop palliative care programs. Um, one reason is perhaps that their system of assisted death may have reinforced beliefs that reducing suffering and improving lives through other means is not feasible. Um, so that's obviously a big problem uh, with those with the idea of assisted suicide, that it will reduce your palliative care programs, reduce your efforts to help people lead a meaningful life because there's an easy solution and it's killing yourself. Yeah, and that is kind of wrapped up in this mantra of choice and people having choice up into the very end of their life. But maybe we also need to focus on the choices they, that they have besides just the choice to take their own life, but right. choices about turning down treatment and choices that help them to to recognize what they most value and to hold on to those things. Um, he says that assisted living is harder than assisted death, but its possibilities are far greater. And I think he means harder for societies to to actually to, implement. To carry out, yeah, yeah, to create the policy in order to do it. Yeah, because it, it, it's so complicated. It's so right. complicated to create this kind of culture that supports people who are dying and helps them to make 
choices. But and it's expensive, very yeah. expensive. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 even more important. It right. seems. Um, he also says he talks about the helping people that we in technology and medicine need to help people fulfill their dying role. And so um, he really urges people who are in medical technology and medical care uh, professions not to focus on helping people die, but helping them to die well, to share their memories and pass on their wisdoms and keepsakes, to settle relationships, establish their legacies, make peace with God, and ensure that those who are left behind will be okay. And they can only do those things if they have their you know, they have some level of mental and physical capacity. But if they're just lying in a bed in the ICU, um, you know, having chosen treatment after treatment, but unable to to talk with their families, they're unable to fulfill their dying role. And um, I just thought that that, again, speaks to the importance of of really understanding what the medical treatment will do to them and um, what their other options, what other options are right. available to them. Yeah. And that was something that his father had to do to realize, okay, I I want to be home and I want to have hospice and I I want to be able to be present with my family even while I'm dying. Right. Yeah, it's such a beautiful choice, really, when you yeah. think about it. You're forgoing the very remote chance of living a little bit longer in favor of making the time that you have remaining count more. Yeah. And I can see how that would be harder to counsel a patient through if the patient was, you know, 30 and like the, the young mom, for instance, who had so much to live for and so much st- still left to do in her life. And it would be harder to convince them to think about forgoing treatment, um, even the most experimental treatments. But I guess that's where it's kind of an individualized case by case kind right. of problem right. you really have to just talk to the individual and talk about what they're valuing and is it important to live x number of years more just for the sake of living longer or um is it important to to live the fullest life now so i mentioned i had one more thing on the hard conversations chapter yeah. that i would mention at the at the end or at a later point so i wanted to talk about this article by Ezekiel Emanuel called Why I Hope to Die at 75. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, and it may be, may be familiar with you if you're uh, listening to this. But by the way, backing up, Ezekiel Emanuel is married to Linda Emanuel. They are both doctors. They are the proponents of that third doctor-patient relationship that Sally outlined, so that interpretive relationship. Um, so Ezekiel and Linda have advocated that model and have taught that in med school. So Ezekiel wrote this article, Why I Hope to Die at 75, in the Atlantic several years ago. And his argument is basically that he wants to die at – well, it's not that he wants to die at 75, but that at this point in his life, he's decided that once he reaches 75, he's going to stop with traditional medicine. He's going to stop uh, taking his medicines. He's going to not go to the hospital if he feels shortness of breath, et cetera. He's just going to let nature run its course. And it might sound a little bit strange for that because you think, oh, 75, you have a lot of a lot of life to live, et cetera. But he's making a personal choice, case by case, like Sally said, to do this for several reasons, um, one being the quality of life issue. He just knows that as he – he's a doctor, so he's seen it before, of course, that as you age, your quality of life decreases, and he's not uh, wanting to perpetuate that for as long as he possibly can. As a medical ethicist, he's also concerned with um, having a lot of money spent on him 
when that money could be used elsewhere. When he knows that he has a decade or maybe a couple of decades left to live, he'd rather that money be spent on uh, you know, vaccines for young children elsewhere. I think he, I think he makes that point in the article, but um, it's a very thought-provoking article for that reason, uh, for those reasons. And I think, like Sally said, it's case by case, so you can't you can't make these things into policy necessarily. Um, but you can help people think about them so that they think correctly and really question. Oh, if I am ninety years old and I have a bad hip, should I have my hip replaced in a surgery? Or should I just let myself live the rest of my days with a bad hip and not risk the the infection from a surgery, uh, not risk the recovery time, not risk just going under the knife in general, which is not an easy thing for a 90-year-old to do? Um, should I just instead resolve to let nature run its course as it will and enjoy the rest of the time that I have, however long it is? Um, again, not something you can put into policy. And doctors should, I think, always be willing to operate on a 90-year-old if the 90-year-old wants to be operated on and have a, a better hip. Uh, but they be should also... Be ready to have those conversations with them. They should also be ready to have those conversations, exactly. Yeah, to be willing to say, my medical power is limited and finite, and I and can't I give worried. you the hip of a 30-year-old. Right. And I'm and, not going to pretend that I can. And I'm worried about you and the outcome of this surgery. Yeah. I think then... So then we had the, the epilogue. And it's really a great summary of his conclusions. So if you don't have time to read the entire book, the epilogue is is kind of just a good a, a good way to to get the the gist of what he's saying. Um, he says, "Being mortal is about the struggle to cope with the constraints of our biology." And I have seen the damage we in medicine do when we fail to acknowledge that such power of medical science uh, is finite and always will be. Because um, and then that's the end of Tulgwande's point, but. Um, a major point that he's making in this book is that medicine isn't just about health and survival, but about well-being and why people want to be alive in the first place. Um, I, I mentioned that I thought that those questions that they asked in the lacrosse was it lacrosse Wisconsin yep. study were kind of the, a good starting point. Um, I like the questions that Atul Gawande mentions in the epilogue. What is your understanding of the situation and its potential outcomes? What are your fears and what are your hopes? What are the trade-offs you are willing to make and not willing to make? What is the course of action that best serves this understanding? These are just broader questions. They're less specific about medical technology, but they're these bigger questions that I think help frame the conversations about specific technologies and specific treatments. And I just, I liked the way that he, he's, he boiled it down to those, those four questions. Um, and, and then the question for medical professionals, does the, a medical intervention that you're suggesting to them serve the larger aims of the person's life? And it's up to the doctor to have the, to know their patient well enough to be able to answer that question. What are the aims of my patient's life, and am I helping them to achieve those? And that's something that um, family members, too, when they have to make decisions as proxies for yes. their other family members, if they haven't had a chance to have these conversations, they can ask, what what are the, you know what what is my father what are my father's aims in life? What were his aims when he yeah. was able to make those choices for himself? And is this in continuity with that? Right. And that's not, I mean, it, those are hard questions to know the answers right. to, which is why having the conversations now with your parents and grandparents is really important while they still can. I think another thing about this, this is sort of a tangential benefit of asking those questions, is not just that it gets the wishes out there and helps people process them, but it actually helps 
people have conversation about that. I mean, if those are good questions for you to have with your parents, right? Yeah. It's good. It's a good question for my daughter who, well, little, little old for her who's two <laughs> right now, but it'll Eventually. be, it'll be a good conversation for her when she's 15 to have with us. What yeah. makes life worth living, right? Why, what are your priorities now as parents? What do you value in life? Those are good questions to have. And in a way, I think they, they, they make us more human. Well, in talking about perspective, having the question with having those conversations with people who are older than exactly. you can help you have a better perspective on Absolutely. your own life, on what you might value when you're when you're 80 that you don't value now. Yeah. So if I have this conversation with my grandfather, who I mentioned is in, is in failing health and is nearing the end, if I were to ask him what he values, I think I would gain a lot from his answer to that. And shame on me for not asking him. Maybe I'll call him tomorrow and ask him that. But it, I think just that process helps us. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been very um, complimentary of Atul Gawande. Yes. I don't know. Do we have any specific – besides his um, his his opinion on assisted right. death, right. Um, which – we he he says that he would be in favor of giving life ending drugs to people who ask for them. We are not in favor of that. Besides that uh, that difference of opinion, what other critiques do we have? I read a couple reviews. Um, one was saying that he doesn't have enough data to support his his opinions, and another one was that he um, raises a lot of big questions but doesn't give a lot of concrete answers. Yeah, I, I think for that. Second complaint, uh, I would say invalid. I throw the penalty flag because because yeah. uh, I think it's impossible to have concrete answers on these. And he's he's also not working for um, he's not working for a congressman trying to create yeah. the next um, the next big you know Affordable Care Act. He's not trying to recraft policy. He's trying to help us think about being mortal. Yeah. And so his book was not designed to make concrete recommendations or solutions yeah is designed to help us to help us think about that even with that said though he does have some concrete solutions so i you know throw another penalty for yeah. him on that so yeah. i disagree with that um as to the first complaint i'm not a clinician so i, ca I yeah. can't really say if there's enough research he does back up his claims with research i mean there's definitely research in there uh he does have a lot of anecdotes but i don't i don't sense that he's using the anecdotes to support his arguments rather to illustrate his arguments. Yes, yeah, that's um, a very good point. So I, I, didn't, I didn't see an issue with that. Um, yeah, if I'm going to raise a, a complaint with this book, um, I think it's the way – and we kind of talked about this offline a little bit. But I think it's the way he packages his whole argument. So I agree with the, the thrust of his message. I agree with his central message. I disagree with his emphasis on independence. And um, autonomy. And autonomy, yeah. I mean, he he quoted. Um, I think I think verbatim uh, he said the late great Ronald Dworkin, the legal philosopher who um, loved autonomy. He packages the whole book in terms of human autonomy and individual choice, and I think it's actually stronger when it's packaged uh, as part of an emphasis on our humanity that includes our collectiveness. Um, his the strongest anecdotes that he cites are the ones of his his own father uh, and his grandfather and community was and family was very important in each of those cases. Um, his emphasis on having the, those conversations um, not just between pa uh, patients and their doctors but also between patients and their families uh, also kind of uh, I think undercuts his emphasis on individuality throughout the book. So yeah, I think it, I think it would be that he packaged it wrong. 
that he is overvaluing individuality when the overvaluing of individuality is one of the things that has created this whole problem in the first place. And he acknowledges that but still wants to basically protect and safeguard individualism uh, at all costs, even in, in later years. And I think that perhaps is a is an error in his recommendation. Yeah, and I think one problem is that when we when we do overemphasize individual choice and autonomy, then we are unable to criticize someone's choices. So then a family member or a doctor could not talk to a patient and say, well, I'm not sure that that is actually what you want to value at the end of your life. Right. And I think it's important to find out what people's preferences are and what their values are and how what they want to hold on to at the end of their lives. But we can also... I think help sway them in one direction or another, not in a um, manipulative way, but in just helping them to kind of reframe their thinking if maybe they are not thinking about things in a way that they should be. Um, and that should is is hard because people have different views of human flourishing. But um, but I think that we can't just kind of put up our hands and say, well, whatever you want is fine. Right. Yeah. Totally agree. So number score, zero to ten. I would say nine. Nine. I would agree. Yeah, I found his writing style very clear and concise and engaging. And, and transparent. Transparent. Um, I loved all of his anecdotes. I found them fascinating. And um, I liked the way that he organized the book. I thought it was very clear. And having that um, history of of end-of-life care leading up to the end-of-life decision-making chapters was very helpful, and I, I really learned a lot. And I just thought it was very practical. It was not just a book for physicians, but a book for everyone who will ever have to make end-of-life decisions, which is all of us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that covers it then. Yeah, great. Well, I hope that you, if you haven't read the book, that we have inspired you to read it, and especially for those who... Um, maybe are caring for elderly relatives or have parents who are caring for elderly elderly relatives, it might be a helpful book to pick up. Definitely. If you have thoughts that you want to add to the conversation, please let us know. We can definitely cover them in our next episode. Uh, I mentioned already Twitter, at VernacularPod, and Instagram, at VernacularPod. Also, email Zach and Sally at VernacularPodcast.com. You can also just go to our website, VernacularPodcast.com, and uh, leave a comment on the episode page. Or on our blog, which you can also reach from our website. And tell us what we should do and see and eat in Austin when we move there this summer. That's right. Also, stay tuned for season six. So this is the final episode of season five. We're wrapping it up, and we are busy planning for season six. Have lots of exciting things coming up uh, on the slate for you. If you have other ideas or if you want to hear from a certain guest, please let us know. Reach out. We're happy to try and make that happen. And we always like hearing from our listeners, too. So please reach out, even if it's just to say hello. I think that wraps it up. Right? Yeah. That's it. Okay. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. You know